Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Rafter. Andrew is the owner of Rafters of Driffield, a greengrocer based in Driffield, East Yorkshire, which supplies high quality fresh produce. Um, Andrew, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. No, thank you for asking us, Scott. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure having you um, on with us as well, Andrew. Um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that business leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time at the moment, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this pandemic has affected you and your business over the last few months. Yeah, well, obviously none of us, uh, none of us quite signed up for this. Um, we, we've been trading here in Driffield for, uh, this is our 22nd year of trading. Uh, it's a market town in the East Riding of Yorkshire. We've got a, a, a nice, steady little business. We employ 30 staff. Uh, we began life just as greengrocers. Uh, and up to March of this year, you know, I would say that things were just quite normal, ticking along nicely. Um, no problems. Like I said, a, a, a good little business, but uh, everything changed overnight. As you know, um, l- luckily for us at the time, we we did have a, an online presence. Um, I wouldn't say it was a, a great success. It was just something that we thought that we needed as a business at the time. Um, but we took the decision to close the retail business uh, I think that was about the 24th of March, um, and immediately transferred everything we were doing uh, onto online. So the changes uh, couldn't have been more dramatic, really. You know, we went from mm. having sort of, you know, trading seven days a week on the high street to pulling the shutters down and, and transferring the business into the warehouse, if you like, and uh, all orders then became online orders. Totally, totally transformed the business overnight. And is that still very much the uh, the case, or with restrictions lifting now, are we starting to see a return to some form of normality, if we call it that? Well, the, the, the interesting thing for us, really, we have now got back up trading again. We opened about uh, mm. six or seven weeks ago. Uh, you would have to see the layout of the shop to appreciate the reasons why we were forced to close. Um, we took the decision because obviously as an essential uh, shop, we were quite entitled to stay open. Uh, but it's a, it's a very long, narrow uh, unit hours, like a, the traditional, typical East, East Yorkshire, Northern market town, really. Uh, we, it, we just couldn't offer a safe environment. So we, um, you know, we took the decision to, to, to close the shop. Uh, and, and very, very quickly um, got to almost ridiculous levels of, of trade. Uh, when, when, when we opened back up, uh, as I say, six weeks ago, um, as, as restrictions began to be lifted, we fully expected a drop-off on the, on the online side as, as, as customers began to venture out. Uh, but I must admit, uh, you know, we've retained may, maybe 30% uh, of, of, of that business uh, while, while the shop trade if you like the retail the footfall um, uh, is is down not considerably down 
but down to what we would normally expect this time of year. But added to the, like I said, the 30% online boost, um, you know, I've got to say that our our business is, is, is in, in quite a healthy position, really. So, you know, the retention of the online, uh, the slow coming back of, of, of the uh, of the footfall uh, has, has meant that, you know, we, we are trading very, very well, to be honest, Scott. Mm. And we've often called this uh, crisis an unprecedented time. It seems to be a buzzword for the uh, the year 2020 so far. But if we call this an experience of crisis management, is there anything in sort of a business leadership capacity that going through this has taught you, do you think? Um, well, you know, I, I haven't really had time to sit down and, and, and analyse the situation, uh, lessons learned or anything. I hope we never have to go through anything like it again. But uh, one thing that was very, very evident very, very quickly uh, was the strength of the team that we already Mm -hmm. had around us. Um, You know, my wife, Tracy, uh, you know, she's very big on on, on development, on on staff development. uh, And I always knew we had a good team, but we've actually got a fantastic team. Uh, and like I say, they they, they show their, their true colours. So so the, the the lesson in that for me was, you know, continue to value uh, colleagues in in the business uh, and develop them, you know, where we can. Uh, we've had some real surprises, to be honest with you. You know, members of staff that appear to be quite happy just to come and do a little part time shift, have stepped up and you know become online experts and. Uh, it's been a, a fantastic experience that way. Of, mm. of, of course, we've we've had, we've had, we've had the issues and the problems that anybody would expect to have. But uh, you know, the lesson that's come out of this is just continue to value our colleagues. Mm. They do say, don't they, that you learn more about yourself and others when the chips are down, and it is a time of adversity. And people really have stepped up during this period, which is incredibly yeah. encouraging to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned, of course, that you hadn't really had time to, of course, sit down and fully analyse exactly what's been going on over the last few months because it is very much all hands to the pump. You're thinking on your feet all the time, just adapting to the changes that are constantly coming in. So at the end of the day, just how easy do you find it to sort of switch off when you need to? Uh, Well, I personally find it very difficult. I I, I must admit, I mean... The nature of our industry, you know, we, we began life as greengrocers. It, it, it's early starts and, and late finishes. So, uh, you know, I'm not one for ever being sort of sitting around or having hobbies or anything like that, Scott. You know, the, the, the business has been, uh, it, it's, it's been a massive part of our lives. Uh, but, um, and, and continues to do, to do so, but... Um, as I say, lo- looking back, I- I've-, I've surprised myself what we've been capable of. Uh, you know, as a family, as a business, uh, it- it's been, you know, as you say, unprecedented is is, is a very much commonly used word. But it- it's it's shocked me what we've been able to achieve in, in you know in such a short space of time. And it's not just through COVID, is it? I mean, pre-pandemic as well. I mean, the business itself um, had. Scoop Fair, a few accolades as well, hasn't it? Best independent food retailer in Yorkshire 2019 at the Yorkshire Live Food and Drink Awards, for example, being one of them there. And there are plenty more to go with that as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we, you know, we were really riding on the crest of a wave at the time. Like I said, we've been here for sort of 22 years. 
Uh, and, and last year we, we were fortunate enough, as you said, to receive the accolade of the best independent retailer in Yorkshire, which um, in, incredible achievement for us, really. I, I mean, everybody knows what a county we've got here and how many you know wonderful, wonderful businesses there are, retail. Uh, and, and to actually come out with that award, it, yeah, we've um, we, we, we've certainly made the most of that one. And, and prior to that, you know, we we did receive on a couple of occasions, two out of three years, we got the uh, the, the, the best uh, the best green growth in the UK as well at the uh, farm shop and uh, and deli show. So uh, yeah, we're proud of what we do. You know, in a mm. little old town called Driffield. So uh, yeah, very proud. And having built up as well a small and successful business to be proud of, if you were to give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role in an established business or was maybe looking to form their own business, what advice would you give them to really send them on the road to success? Well, I think I think what you, you mustn't kid yourself and you've really got to throw yourself into the role. There's no shortcuts. Well, well if there is, I've not been able to find them. You know, it really is, you must really absorb everything about the business, every single role in the business. You know, I'm able to, am able to sort of have an opinion if I can't completely carry it out to, to the best of my, my satisfaction. You know, just really, really understand the business um, and, and, and just expect to give it your all. You know, I've seen people come and open shops and, stick staff in it and go on the golf course or, you know, take holidays, buy new cars after after a, a few months. There's a common denominator, Scott, you know, within, within a few months that, that those businesses have folded. You know, it's a massive, massive sacrifice uh, to, to, to come and work for yourself and uh, and run your own business and uh, and just make sure you put the right people around you. And that's, that's easier said than done because... It, it takes a while before you you know whether or not that decision's been right, the, the right one or not. But uh, just continue to strive to get the best people that you can and look after them people, uh, but prepare to roll up your sleeves and work harder than you could ever imagine. Mm. And I think it's those people who really adopted that mentality that will be reaping the rewards, if we could call it that, at this point in time as well, and their businesses are still alive and kicking and hopefully are going to last out this period. Um, well, we, yeah. well, that's right. Mm. You know, I, I just it, it, it was it was survival mode. You know, something that we've always been in. To be honest, obviously, small independent uh, traders. You know, we've always had the uh, you know the big boys looking down upon us. You know, the big sheds, the Tesco's, the Asda's. You know, then we had the online. You've got the Amazon things going on. So we're forever under pressure and looking to try and keep one step ahead wherever we can. Uh, and I think that mentality uh, is probably what got us through this, this this crisis up to now. And of course, none of us know whether or not it's finished and there's worse or better to come. But uh, you know that, like I say, the survival mode that you have uh, that that's that's what got us through this. I'm no doubt about it. So. And thinking about the next 12 to 18 months, so the sort of short term over the next uh, year, we know we're going to have to adjust to a new way of working, a new way of living, the new normal, as they call it. But during that time, what is next for you and for the business, Andrew? And what are you really hoping to achieve? Well, you know, like I said early on in, the, in this conversation, we have woken up to the online side uh, of trading. Um, we, we always knew there were a place for that within our business. Uh, but we are very, very focused on that now. 
Uh, you know, we've acquired a, a couple of extra vehicles over the last few weeks. Uh, we, we, we're completely transforming the the premises that we've got to um, accommodate uh, online picking orders. You know, we're extending the working day, shifts coming in on an afternoon, picking orders for the following day. So that's where our focus looks like it's uh, it, it, it's going. I've got to be honest and say, you know, I am a bit of an old-fashioned sort of trader, really. I do like to be on the shop floor, meeting the customers face-to-face, having the chat, having the banter. Um, that will continue. Uh, it, it appears it may not be like it used to be numbers-wise, numbers, numbers wise, although, like I said, it is coming back slowly but surely. But I think we've just got to be, you know, very, very aware that, um, you know, that the days have gone, uh, stood in the shop, waiting for customers to come across that threshold mm. on a daily basis. We've got to we've got to grasp the, the, the online side of things, and that's what we're focusing on now, uh, and it's going to be a big part of our future. Mm. And let's certainly hope it's a prosperous future coming up um, as well, Andrew. I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us on the uh, the programme today. And just given how enlightening it's been as well, I think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point over the next uh, few months, just to see how things are getting on at that point in time. I'd really enjoy that. Thank you very much, Scott, and I've enjoyed today. Thank you. Likewise, um, Andrew, it's been a real pleasure having you, as I say, and most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Thank you. All the best to you. I was speaking today to Andrew Rafter, owner of Rafters of Driffield. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who during his professional football career scored over 200 Football League goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. However, it's his exploits for England that he's most renowned for, having been the only man to score a hat-trick to to this very day in a World Cup final after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. Sir Jeff will be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports 
and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, 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 of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, 
during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got to you've got to 
a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing today and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's a three of us play football. But amongst those houses, 
where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, well, you were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under Lyons. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game at the 
sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got Norton and Norton on out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players and Banks he was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I felt it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year. But I made very little contribution to that success that club had. So um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and oh, I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.